Welcome to God is Open. Today on God is Open, we're going to be reading The Trial of Servetus without comment from the book Hunted Heretic, The Life and Death of Michael Servetus. The trial itself involved five phases. One, first came a series of examinations on the basis of charges supplied by Calvin. Two, further oral examinations by the public prosecutor followed. The correspondence with Vienne formed an interlude. Three, the trial continued in the form of a running debate between Calvin and Servetus, who took advantage of his ink and paper to address several pleas to the council, among others an appeal to the 200. Four, the Swiss cities were consulted and their replies submitted to the council. Five, on the basis of this material, the court deliberated and passed judgment. In the first phase, there were five examinations. First, the Lieutenant General, Tizat, made an investigation to see whether there was ground for continuance of the case. After the replies of Servetus, Nicholas Fontaine, Calvin's secretary and surety, supplied copies of the Ptolemy of 1535, of the Paganini Bible, of the printed Restuto, and of the manuscript, the one which Calvin had not returned for printing of the book, but now supplied as an aid to burning the author. The accused and the accuser were then committed to the jailer, who was instructed to relieve Servetus of his valuables, consisting of 60 gold encas, a gold chain worth as much, and six gold rings. Nicholas then petitioned the council for release since the charges were sufficiently substantiated inasmuch as the replies of Servetus were but silly songs. Incidentally, Nicholas remarked that he had felt bound to defend the honor of Calvin and of the church at Geneva. Local instead of national honor. The report of the lieutenant persuaded the council to make the next examination itself. This took place on August 15th. This was the first hearing before the council, but the second examination. As a result, Nicholas was released from prison, but only because Calvin's brother, Anton, became surety in his stead. On the following day, August 16, the council subjected Servetus to his third questioning. There were two significant changes in the court. Caledon, the Calvinist, appeared as an advocate for Nicholas, this Caledon is one, as previously noted, whose name appears in the Edinburgh copy of Restuto. The place of the lieutenant was taken by Philip Berthelier, the libertine. Calvin heard that he had espoused the cause of Servetus, which is not at all improbable since the council invited Calvin to come himself the next time to defend his accusations. We may assume that he was present for the fourth examination, as a result of which Nicholas was entirely freed. On the 21st, Calvin refuted the use which Servetus made of the church fathers. The charges thus far levied against Servetus and his replies are available partly in the public records, partly in Calvin's account. There were 39 accusations which reduced themselves to a few groups. These deal with the earlier life and publications of the accused with his doctrine especially of pantheism, of the trinity, immortality, and baptism, and with his abusiveness against Mechelchon and the church at Geneva. 
As for Servetus's life, the accusation was made that, about 29 years before, he had begun to trouble the churches of Germany by his errors and heresies, that he was condemned and had to flee to escape punishment. He answered that he had written a book, but had not troubled the churches so far as he knew. The letters of Achaemenides were produced and for some unaccountable reason thus came for the first time to the eyes of Servetus. The next count referred to the book which had infected many people. Servetus admitted the book but denied the infection. He was at next charged with continuing to sow his poison in the annotations on Ptolemy and in the comments on the Bible. The records of the council compare interestingly at this point with Calvin's version. According to the public document, Servetus replied that there was nothing wrong with Ptolemy. It sold publicly throughout Christendom, and he had lectured on it at Paris. When the book was produced, and he was shown the passage on Judea, he said that he had not written it, but that nevertheless there was nothing wrong with it. He understood it as applying to the present century rather than to the time of Moses. The court objected that since he included all who had written on the country, he included Moses. This is the official account. Calvin amplified by saying that Servetus at first growled when he had not written the passage, but this cold cavil was at once refuted, for in this he was shown to be a clear impostor. Thus being driven in a corner, he said that there was nothing the matter with it. He was asked who but Moses could be meant by that vain preacher of Judea, as if he answered no others had written on Judea. Calvin retorted that Moses was first and must have deceived the others. But the dirty dog whipped his snout and said in a word that there was nothing wrong with it, and when he could think of no subterfuge would not make a clear confession. So Calvin, yet Servetus was right that he had not composed the passage. He might have added that he omitted it from the second edition, and he had looked again at the first. He might have shown that phrase, that vain preacher of Judea did not appear. As for the Bible, Calvin said that Servetus spoiled every page with fruitile trifles and impious ravings. The comment on Isaiah 53 might serve as an example. The perfidious scamp wretches the passage so as to apply it to Cyrus, though adding that Christ is foreshadowed for whom alone this language is suitable. But in the meantime, we are left with no satisfaction for sins, no means of propitiating God, no purgation. Everyone will admit that I was right when I told him that no author had so boldly corrupted this single prophecy. One notes that Calvin did not take exception to the treatment of the virgin birth passage in Isaiah 7. On the doctrinal questions, Calvin furnished the following account of the discussion of pantheism. When he asserted that all creatures are of the proper essence of God, and so all things are full of God's, for he did not blush to speak and write his mind in this way, I, wounded with indignation, objected, What wretch! If one stamps the floor, would one say that one stamped on your God? Does not such an absurdity shame you? But he answered, I have no doubt that this bench or anything you point to is God's substance. And when again it was objected, the devil then will be substantially God, he broke out laughing and said, Can you doubt it? 
This is my fundamental principle that all things are part and portion of God, and the nature of things is the substantial spirit of God. Servetus, in commenting on the encounter, said, Stamping your foot, you said that you did not move in God. You must therefore have moved in the devil. But we move and are in God, in whom we live. Even if you are a blind demon, you are substantiated nevertheless by God. As for the Trinity, Servetus declared that he did not believe in it, that is, in the Father, in the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three persons in God. He said, however, that he interpreted the word person differently from the Moderni. Only those who placed a real distinction in the divine essence would he call Trinitarians and atheists. The charge that he denied immortality was stoutly repudiated. Servetus had never thought, nor said, nor written that the soul is mortal, but only that it is clothed with corruptible elements. But he admitted without reservation his severest strictures on infant baptism. It is the invention of the devil, an infernal falsity for the destruction of all Christianity. This he would hold unless convicted to the contrary. He did not believe that children are without original sin, but that redemption must wait until they are mature. He believed that God would not regard as mortal those sins which are committed before the age of twenty. As for the abuse of Melanchthon and Calvin, and of Geneva in his letter to Pupin, Servetus averred that it did not exceed the scurrility previously heaped upon him by the reformers in printed books. He had no intention of injuring Calvin and wished merely to show his heirs. Later in the trial, Servetus asserted that, It is common today, and in a matter of disputation, that each should maintain his cause considering that the adverse party is on the way to damnation. In other words, abuse is simply the technique of controversy. With regard to the use of church fathers, Calvin related that Servetus was in the habit of brazenly citing authorities at which he never looked. A laughable and ridiculous example is given in the case of Justin Martyr. For when he complacently asserted that the fables of the Trinity and persons were unknown in his golden age, I called for a codex and put my finger on a certain passage in which the holy man set forth our opinion no less clearly than if he had written at our request. But this genius of Servetus, who was so proud of his linguistic accomplishment, could no more read Greek than a boy who had just stared at the alphabet, and seeing himself trapped, brazenly asked for a Latin translation. What? I said. When there is no Latin translation, you cannot read Greek. Nevertheless, you pretend to be so familiar with Justin. This was utterly unfair. Servetus knew Greek and knew it well, but his knowledge of Justin was based entirely on a fragment in a Latin translation of Arrhenius, as well as on quotations in an earlier author whom Servetus supposed to be Justin. He had not had an opportunity to avow himself of the Greek text of Justin, which had appeared in print at Paris only two years previously, and which included both genuine works and those known to be spurious. When Calvin then produced this edition, and in good faith pointed to the passage from the pseudo-Justin which read, The one is perceived in the triad, and the triad is known in the one. Servetus, who had never seen it before, was naturally nonplussed. The examinations ended. The council voted to give Servetus books and paper to present a written request. Inquiries should be made at Vienna as to why he was detained, and how he escaped, and the Swiss cities should be informed. 
The letter to Vienna was sent the next day, August 22. This ends the first phase of the trial. The second phase was marked by the entry of Rigat, the public prosecutor, himself a libertine, who undertook to answer the prisoner's plea to the Council for Liberation. Servetus based his petition on the ground that in the early church there had been no criminal prosecution for doctrine, and that in the days of Constantine the maximum penalty for heresy had been banishment. He was not seditious and had never troubled their country nor any other. He did not approve of the Anabaptist attitude towards the magistrate, Inasmuch he was a stranger in their city and ignorant of their customs, let them give him representation by counsel. The prosecutor replied that Servetus was wrong about the early church. It was the pagan judges who cared for none of these things. The Christians executed heretics from Constantine to Justinian. The plea for toleration was itself a confession of guilt. Servetus knew that he deserved death, Rigget claimed, but to avoid it he raised an objection against capital punishment for criminals. As for an advocate, the prosecutor continued, Servetus could lie well enough without one. Rigget subjected Servetus to two examinations in which an attempt was made to prove that his doctrines were subversive of the social order and that his life, in consequence, must be dissolute. The very plea for religious liberty was interpreted as a political menace, on the ground that it would take the sword of justice from the magistrate. The teaching of Servetus that those under 20 could not commit a mortal sin was regarded as a license to the young to commit adultery, theft, and murder with impunity. Examined as to his relations with the Jews and the Turks, Servetus said that he had not communicated with the Jews on matters of religion, and that he was not of Jewish extraction. He had read the Quran, which was allowed at Basel, it was a bad book, but he had used only the good. He would no more aid Muhammad than the devil. This attempt to connect Servetus with the Jews and Turks is highly significant in the view of the popular belief that tolerance of his views would cause Europe to succumb to the Turk. It was remembered that the regions in which Paul of Samosia and Arius had once assailed the Trinity were now in the hands of the infidel. A long series of questions were designed to give the impression that he had been a turbulent character and lived loosely for years. Had he not been arrested for wounding someone in a brawl? Servetus in reply related the incident at Charu. Had he ever been married, and if not, how could he refrain so long? Servetus replied that he was physically unfit because of an operation and a rupture. Seeing that he had lived a dissolute life and had not had the grace to live chastely as a true Christian, what had led him to write on the fundamentals of the Christian religion? Servetus answered that he had studied the Holy Scripture with a desire for the truth and that he had lived as a Christian. The prosecutor reverted to these charges in the second hearing. How old was he when he was operated on and ruptured? Servetus said that he could not remember, but he was probably about five. Had he contemplated marriage at Charu? Yes, but he had refrained because of his incapacity. He had remarked, had he not, that there were enough women in the world without marrying. Servetus replied that he did not remember having said it, but he might have done so in jest and conceal his impotence. Had he not lived wantingly at Charu, and elsewhere, Servetus answered no. There were many questions about the work on the heirs of the Trinity and about the relation to 
Acolampadius, Bowser, and Capito, as well as about the printing of Restuto and the dealings with Arnulet and Grulut. The prosecutor continued, Did he not know that his book would greatly disturb Christendom? No, he thought that Christendom would profit, and the truth would be worked out little by little. What truth did he think was not already worked out? Calvin's doctrine of predestination, he retorted, and of the descent into hell. Did he then think that this doctrine would be accepted and it was true? He answered that he did not know whether it would be accepted, but he thought it true, for things are often at first reproved, which are afterwards received. If then he thought he would offend God in concealing his opinions, why did he not proclaim them in France? Because, he answered, we should not cast pearls before swine, and there was great persecution among the papists. The courier now came from Vienna accompanied by the jailer and the captain and brought a copy of the sentence, but not the acts of the trial. Vienna assured Geneva that if the fugitive were returned, he would be punished so that there would be no need of any further charges. The jailer asked for an attestation from Servetus that the former had not assisted the later's escape. Servetus was called and gladly exonerated the jailer. When asked whether he wished to be sent back to Vienna, he fell on the ground in tears and begged that he might be judged in Geneva. Magrion sent word that the king had awarded the goods of the heretic to his son. Would the council at Geneva kindly obtain from Servetus a statement of debts to be discharged? The property confiscated amounted to 3,000 or 4,000 ecus. Servetus declined to give this information on the grounds that his creditors would be molested by the Inquisition. This ends the second phase of the trial. The public prosecutor made his exit. In the next scene, Calvin and theology returned. The third phase consisted of a written discussion between Servetus and Calvin in Latin. The specification that it must be in Latin indicates that the documents were intended for the Swiss cities. The council had already decided to keep them informed and now Servetus made a direct appeal for their arbitrament. This statement comes from Calvin, who said in print that he gladly accepted the condition. A letter to Bullinger of Zurich would indicate, however, that Calvin was anything but glad. Our magistrates, he wrote, cause you this trouble against our will. They have reached such a point on the madness that they question everything we say. So if I assert that it is light at noon, they begin to have their doubts about it. The discussion was not conducted in the best temper on either side. Calvin's statement was submitted to Servetus, who scribbled over it with exasperated comments. The doctrine of the Trinity, of course, came in for discussion with special reference to the views of Arrhenius and Tertullian. Calvin asserted that Tertullian recognized a real distinction between the persons of the Trinity. Servetus commented, You lie. Nothing of the sort was ever heard of in Tertullian, but only a disposition. Calvin wrote, if there were a drop of veracity in Servetus, would he have dared to abuse this passage to the denial of a real distinction? Servetus commented, Unless Simon Magnus had closed your eyes, you would see that nothing was ever said there about a real distinction, but rather of a formal disposition. Servetus constantly flung the epitaph of Simon Magnus at Calvin through the belief that Simon was the father of the doctrine of predestination. A memorandum was submitted to the judges by the ministers of Geneva who said, 
Surfatist thinks that the judges will not know how eloquent he is and what an unabashed reveler unless at the outset he calls Calvin a homicide and afterwards vomits many insults upon him. Servetus retorted, Deny that you are a homicide, and by your acts I will prove it. But in so just a cause I am consistent. I do not fear death. The ministers continued, This prodigious blaspheming chaos deserves no mercy. To this Servetus appended, Let mercy therefore be shown to Simon Magnus. The ministers asserted that, the man's utter lack of the spirit of meekness and docility is nowhere more apparent than in his furious assault upon infant baptism as a detestable abomination. Servetus wrote over against the word meekness. You should show it towards me, even though I were possessed of an evil spirit. But this discussion was not merely reviling. Calvin and Servetus came to grips, not so much over the doctrine of the Trinity, however, as with regard to the nature of God and man. Servetus believed that Calvin's doctrine of original sin, total depravity, and determinism reduced man to a log and a stone. Calvin believed that Servetus's doctrine of the deification of humanity degraded God and made deity subject to the vices and infirmities of the flesh. Calvin believed that Servetus's doctrine of the deification of humanity degraded God and made deity subject to the vices and infirmities of the flesh. That was why Calvin could not admit any spark of divinity in children. And when Servetus declared that they could not commit a mortal sin, Calvin answered, He is worthy that the little chickens, all sweet and innocent as he makes them, should dig out his eyes a hundred thousand times. There is an extensive passage in Calvin's refutation which goes to the core of the controversy. He objects that the doctrine of divine eminence as set forth by Servetus means not simply that God sustains his creation, but that God is enmeshed in his creation. The deification of man was for Calvin no less intolerable. Servetus claims, he says that, the spirits of the faithful are participants of the divine nature. In them is the substance of the eternal spirit, and their seats have been prepared from eternity. This perverse delirium about the eternal substance has often been refuted. What could be more ridiculous than to claim eternity in the case of for those whom God freely prepared a kingdom before ever they were born? Regenerate souls are said by Servetus to be co-substantial with God, Therefore, whatever they possess of right and justice is not conferred upon them by grace, but implemented in them by nature. In that case, eternal life would be no longer at once a gift and a reward. And what becomes of the eternal essence of God? That single word God, I am that I am, sufficiently shows how impious it is to transfer his eternal essence in divine eternity to creatures. I bear in mind that in another place Servetus babbles that we are in the substance generated by God, and in no other way is divinity conferred upon us than in the same manner as Christ is taken up into God, so that in us there is a hypostatic union of divine and the human. But what does this conflation of God and man mean if not that God is made corruptible and is thereby condemned to extinction? For Calvin, then, the deification of humanity meant not the exaltation of humanity, but the degradation of divinity. And with this, the extinction of everything that matters, whether in life, death, or eternity. The council voted to send the documents to the Swift cities, and pending their reply, to let the case rest. 
This was on September 5. Calvin busied himself in the meantime with writing to the Frankfurt pastors to destroy the copies of the Restuto, which contained a rhapsody composed of the impious ravings of all the ages. Servetus, after ten days, addressed this petition to the council. I humbly beg you that you cut short these long delays and deliver me from prosecution. You see that Calvin is at the end of his rope, not knowing what to say and for his pleasure wishes to make me rot here in prison. The lice eat me alive. My clothes are torn, I have nothing for a change. Neither jacket nor shirt, but a bad one. I have addressed you to another petition, which was according to God and to impede it, Calvin cites Justinian. He is in a bad way to quote against me what he does not himself credit. For he does not believe what Justinian had to say about the holy church of bishops and priests and other matters of religion, and knows well that the church was already degenerated. It is a great shame, the more so that I have been caged here for five weeks, and he has not urged against me a single passage. My lords, I have also asked you to give me a procurator or advocate as you did my opponent, who is not in the same straits as I, who am a stranger and ignorant of the customs of the country." You permitted it to him, but not to me, and you have liberated him from prison before knowing. I petition you that my case be referred to the Council of the Two Hundred with my requests, and if I may appeal there, I do so readily assume all the costs, lost, and interests of the law of an eye for an eye, both against the first accuser and against Calvin, who has taken up the case himself. Done in your prisons of Geneva." September 15, 1553, Michael Servetus in his own cause. In reply to the petition, the council voted merely to give Servetus clothes at his own expense. The prisoner now submitted his notes on Calvin's last reply. With the complaint that he had not been refuted from scripture, he concluded, Michael Servetus signs alone, but Christ is his sure protector. Another note explained why he had marked up Calvin's paper, and it was signed, Your Poor Prisoner, M.S. The correspondence with the Swiss cities continued. On September 22, Servetus sent another petition to the council. Calvin had falsely accused him, among other things, of denying the immortality of the soul. Servetus agrees that this would be indeed a horrible blasphemy. He who thinks this does not believe that there is a God, nor justice, nor resurrection, nor Jesus Christ, nor Holy Scripture, nor anything. If I had said that, I should condemn myself to death. Wherefore, I asked, honored sirs, that my false accuser be made a prisoner like me until the matter be settled by my death or by his another penalty. Wherefore, I ask, honored sir, that my false accuser be made a prisoner like me until the matter be settled by my death or his or another penalty, and I shall be glad to die if he be not convicted of this and other things, which I mentioned below. I demand justice, my lords, justice, justice. Appended was a list of questions on which Calvin should be interrogated. 1. Whether in the month of March he had not written Guelmi Tier of Loins to disclosing the doings of Michael Villanovanus, called Servetus. 2. Whether with this letter he had not sent half of the first choir of the work of the said Servetus entitled Christianimissi Restutio. 3. Whether he had not sent these to the officials at Lyons and in order to accuse Servetus. 
Four, whether 15 days later he had not sent by the same Guel Ami Tier 20 letters in Latin which Servetus had sent to him. Five, whether he was aware that in consequence of this accusation Servetus had been burned in effigy. Six, whether he did not well know that it was not the office of minister of the gospel to make a capital accusation and to pursue a man at law to the death. Then follows the indictment. Messieurs, there are four great and infallible reasons why Calvin should be condemned. 1. This first is that a matter of doctrine should not be subject to criminal prosecution, as I can amply show from the ancient doctors of the church. 2. The second is that he is a false accuser. 3. The third is that his frivolous and calamitous reasons he opposes the truth of Jesus Christ. 4. The fourth is that in large measure he follows the doctrine of Simon Magnus. Therefore, as a sorcerer, he should not only be condemned, but exterminated and driven from this city. And his goods should be adjudged to me in recompense for mine, Michael Servetus, in his own cause. There's nothing in the records until October 10. On that date, we find the following note, which explains much as to the prisoner's lapses from clarity and his fluctuations of feelings. The Libertines were not in such an intimate contact with Servetus as were the Lice. He wrote, Honored sirs, it is now three weeks that I have sought an audience and have been unable to secure one. I beg you, for the love of Jesus Christ, not to refuse me what you would not refuse to a Turk, who sought justice at your hands. I have some important and necessary matters to communicate to you. As for what you commanded that something be done to keep me clean, nothing has been done. I am in a worse state than before. The cold greatly distresses me because of my colic and rupture, causing other complaints which I should be ashamed to describe. It is great cruelty that I have not permission to speak, if only to remedy my necessities. For the love of God, honored sirs, give your order, whether for pity or duty, done in your prisons of Geneva, October 10, 1553. The council voted again to give him a change of clothing. This ends the third phase of the trial. In its fourth phase, the trial assumed a national character. The magistrates and ministers of the Swiss cities were alike invited to give their opinions. A uniform letter from the council at Geneva was addressed to the councils of Zurich, Bern, Mazel, and Schaffenhausen. Magnificence Sigurers, we do not know whether you are aware that we have a prisoner by the name of Michael Servetus, who has published a book containing many things against our religion. We have submitted this to our ministers, and, though we have no lack of confidence in their judgment, we should like to know also the opinion of your ministers. We have written to them directly, and we beg you affectionately to use your good offices that they may examine everything and give their replies in order that the affair may be brought to a proper termination. We pray God that he may increase the prosperity of your commonwealth. Your good neighbors and great friends of the syndics and council of Geneva, September 21, 1553. The replies of the magistrates were comparatively brief. A little glimpse is given into their attitude in a letter from Haller, the minister at Bern, to Bollinger, the minister at Zurich. We explained, he wrote, the primary errors of Servetus point by point to our council, i.e. the magistrates. At their request, on hearing this, they were also indignant that I doubt not they would have burned him had he been detained in their prisons. But since the matter went over their heads, they wanted us to write privately to the Genevan Council. 
The magistrates of Bern therefore replied very briefly. The ministers of the same city sent a long disquisition in their dialect, in which they pointed out that the doctrine of the impossibility of a mortal sin before the twentieth year would be subversive of public morality, especially in these days when the young are so corrupt. There was also a letter in Latin in which these same ministers said, in part, We see that Satan operates most persistently in a thousand ways to hinder the progress of the light of truth, so that if he cannot extinguish it, he may at least obscure it with the clouds of pernicious and intricate dogma. Servetus is a man of little modesty, who calls in question the fundamentals of the Christian religion, revives the errors of the ancient heretics, and does not hesitate to adhere to the sects of our own time, reviling infant baptism. We pray God to give you a spirit of prudence, wisdom, and fortitude, that this past may be adverted from your church and others. The ministers at Schaffhausen said, We do not doubt that you, in your wisdom, will repress his attempts, lest his blasphemies, like a cancer, despoil the members of Christ. Zurich did not mention the rejection of infant baptism, for which so many had suffered there. The ministers were shocked, rather, that Servetus repudiated the doctrine of the Trinity, which was unanimously accepted by the universal church. We judge that one should work against him with great faith and diligence, especially as our churches have an ill repute abroad as heretics and patrons of heretics. God's holy providence has now indeed provided this occasion whereby you may at once purge yourselves and us of this fearful suspicion of evil. The means of coercion were left to the judgment of Geneva. The ministers of Basel said that they agreed with Zurich and need not repeat what had already been said. Like Byrne, Basel was distressed because the Prince of Darkness strained every nerve to overthrow the fundamentals. Paul called such a pest a gnawing cancer, and both the Apostle and the Fathers regarded heresy as worse than crime. Servetus exceeds all the old heretics since he vomits their combined errors from one impetute and blasphemous mouth. Like an excited snake, he hisses curses and contumely against Calvin, that most sincere servant of God. Geneva should try to cure him, but if he is incurable, he should be coerced by your office and the power conceded by the Lord, lest he be able to give further trouble to the Church of Christ. These replies appear as unanimous as they were rigorous. But throughout the Swiss cities, there was an undercurrent of dissent which comes to light in the private correspondence of the period. Calvin wrote to Sulzer, minister at Basel, commending a certain magistrate for his zeal against Servetus, and then adding very significantly, I wish that your formal disciples were as enthusiastic. Evidence of a very considerable disaffection was declared by a distinguished refugee from Italy, a one-time papal nuncio, Vergerio by name, now a simple minister for the gospel in the Grisons. From Chur, he wrote to Bollinger on the 3rd of October to say that he detested such monsters as Servetus. Nevertheless, I should not think that fire and sword should be used against them. Again on the 8th, he wrote that, he was terrified by the tragedy of Servetus. The papists would now scoff that under the guise of reformation the churches were being deformed and the fundamentals shaken. One needs to read a letter like this to understand the attitude of the men of the period. They had given up country, home, property, and honor for the sake of the gospel. 
Frigerio himself had renounced a position of eminence. He was deeply concerned that the reform should not issue in the complete doctrinal disintegration of Christianity. Nevertheless, he would not countenance such a means to arrest it. His letter continues, I have seen your responses to the Genevan Council. They will do. You do not say expressly that the heretic should be put to death, but the reader may readily infer this is your opinion. I have written to you what I think, and I will leave the matter to the Lord. I hate such disturbers more than a dog and a snake, but I should have preferred that they be incarcerated in the foulest dungeons rather than they be destroyed by fire and sword. It is to be regretted that the scamp has supporters among the doctors who are not just nominally for the gospel, but wish to be considered as pillars. I say what I know, not what I suspect. I have heard it from themselves, not from others, recently and a long time ago, but I do not wish to write. You will hear when we are together. In a communication of the 14th, he said, Copies of your responses to the Genevan Council I have sent to many in Italy. They will do good. Virgilio evidently did not mean to press his objections. He went on, a friend has written me from Basel that Servetus has supporters there. This confirms what I wrote to you the other day. On the 19th, a friend at Basel informed Bollinger that a distinguished scholar lately came from Italy and had espoused the cause of Servetus. Among the learned in the city, there were others of the same mind. While the trial of Servetus was in progress, one protest indeed came from Basel, an anonymous letter in Dutch. This was the work of David Joris, a one-time leader of the Anabaptists now living under the assumed name of Johan van Brugge. The communication was addressed to the noble, honorable, worthy, pious, prudent, wise lords of the evangelical cities of Switzerland. The letter continues, I have heard how the good pious servitus was delivered into your hands through no kindness and love, but rather through envy and hate as will be made manifest at the last judgment to those whose eyes are now darkened by base cunning, and to whom the truth is unknown. God give them to understand, for the report has gone far and wide, and even to my ears, that the ministers have written to several places, and have determined among themselves to pass sentence of death, which has so troubled me that I could have no peace until I had lifted up my voice as a member of the body of Christ." and poured forth my heart briefly before your highness and freed my conscience. I hope that the bloodthirsty counsel of the learned will not weigh with you. Consider rather the precepts of our only Lord and Master Christ, who taught not only in human and in literal fashion in Scripture, but also in a divine manner by word and example that we should crucify and kill no one for his faith, but should rather be crucified and killed ourselves." The council at Geneva probably never saw this appeal. The responses of the magistrates and ministers indicated unanimity in favor of extreme measures. The evidence was now fully assembled. The court could not proceed to the verdict. The court could proceed to the verdict. Calvin wrote to Farrell on the 26th of October that Perrin had made one more futile attempt to save the prisoner by an appeal to the 200. Nevertheless, he was condemned without dissent. Tomorrow he will be led to the execution. We tried to change the mode of his death, but in vain. Of this attempt on the part of the ministers, the public records are silent. But there can be no doubt that Calvin preferred the sword to the stake on humanitarian grounds. The sentence is dated on the 27th. On only two counts, significantly, was Servetus condemned, namely anti-Trinitarianism and anti-Pedio-Baptism.
There's nothing about pantheism and the denial of immortality. Nothing about the Ptolemy or the Pangini Bible. Nothing about moral offenses. The judges apparently felt that these charges had not been substantiated. There's absolutely nothing about any political offense. Servicius died as a heretic. This is the verdict. The sentence pronounced against Michael Servet de Vanilla of the Kingdom of Aragon in Spain, who some 23 or 24 years ago printed a book at Hagnui in Germany against the Holy Trinity, containing many great blasphemies to the scandal of the said churches of Germany, the which book he freely confesses to have printed in the teeth of the remonstrances made to him by the learned and evangelical doctors of Germany. In consequence, he has become a fugitive from Germany. Nevertheless, he continued in his heirs, and in order the more to spread the venom of his heresy, he printed secretly a book in Vienna of Dauphiny, full of the said heresies and horrible, exacerbable blasphemies against the Holy Trinity, against the Son of God, against the baptism of infants and the foundations of the Christian religion, he confesses that in this book he called believers in the Trinity Trinitarians and atheists. He calls this Trinity a diabolical monster with three heads. He blasphemes detestably against the Son of God, saying that Jesus Christ is not the Son of God from eternity. He calls infant baptism an invention of the devil and sorcery, his execrable blasphemies are scandalous against the majesty of God, the Son of God, and the Holy Spirit. This entails the murder and ruin of many souls. Moreover, he wrote a letter to one of our ministers in which, along with other numerous blasphemies, he declared our holy evangelical religion to be without faith and without God, and that in a place of God we have a three-headed Cerberus. He confesses that because of this abominable book he was made a prisoner at Vienna, and perfidiously escaped, he has been burned there in effigy together with five bales of his books. Nevertheless, having been in prison and in our city, he persists maliciously in his detestable errors and culminates true Christians and faithful followers of the immaculate Christian tradition. Wherefore, we syndics, judges of criminal cases in the city, having witnessed the trial conducted before us at the instance of our lieutenant against you, Michael Servet de Villeneuve of the Kingdom of Aragon in Spain, and having seen your voluntary and repeated confessions and your books, judge that you, Servetus, have for a long time promulgated false and thoroughly heretical doctrine, despising all remonstrances and corrections, and that you have, with malicious and perverse obstinacy, sown and divulged even in printed books opinions against god the father son and the holy spirit in a word against the fundamentals of the christian religion and that you have tried to make a schism and trouble the church of god by which many souls may have been ruined and lost a thing horrible shocking scandalous and infectious and you have had neither shame nor horror of setting yourself against divine majesty and the holy trinity and so you have obstinately tried to infect the world with your stinking, heretical poison. For these and other reasons, desiring to purge the church of God of such infection and cut off the rotting member, having taken counsel with our citizens and having invoked the name of God to give just judgment, 
having God and the Holy Scriptures before our eyes, speaking in them the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we now in writing give final sentence and condemn you, Michael Servetus, to be bound and taken to Shample, and there attached to a stake and burned with your books to ashes. And so you shall finish your days and give an example to others who would commit the like. And we command our lieutenant to execute this present sentence upon you. Calvin tells how Servetus received the news. At first he was stunned, and then sighed as to be heard throughout the room. Then he moaned like a madman, and had no more composure than a demonic. At length his cries so increased that he continually beat his breast and bellowed in Spanish, Misericordia! Misericordia! When he came to himself, his first request was that he might see Calvin, who obtained permission from the council for the visit. Calvin himself gives us the account of the interview. When he was asked what he had to say to me, he replied that he desired to beg my pardon. Then I protested simply, and it is the truth that I had never entertained any personal rancor against him. I reminded him gently how I risked my life more than 16 years ago to gain him for our Savior. If he would return to reason, I would faithfully do my best to reconcile him to all good servants of God. And although he had avoided the contest, I had never ceased to remonstrate with him kindly in letters. In a word, I had used all humanity to the very end, until he, being embittered by my good advice, hurled all manner of rage and anger against me. But I told him that I would pass over everything which concerned me personally. He should rather ask the pardon of God, whom he had so basely blasphemed in his attempt to efface the three persons in one essence saying that those who recognize God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with a real distinction created a three-headed hound of hell. I told him to beg the pardon of the Son of God, whom he had disfigured with his dreams, denying that he came in our flesh, and was like us in his human nature, and so define that he is the sole Redeemer. But when I saw that all this did no good, I did not wish to be wiser than my master allows, so following the rules of St. Paul, I withdrew from the heretic who was self-condemned. Nowhere does Calvin more clearly disclose himself as one of the last great figures to the Middle Ages. To him, it was also perfectly clear that the majesty of God, the salvation of souls, and the stability of Christendom were at stake. Never for a moment did he suppose that he was acting simply on behalf of the laws of a single city. The law under which Servetus had first been imprisoned was that of the Holy Roman Empire. The law by which he was in the end condemned was that of the Codex of Justinian, which prescribes the penalty of death for two ecclesiastical offenses, the denial of the Trinity and the repetition of baptism. Here again, in variant form, was a revival of ecclesiastical state in the sense of an entire society operating under the law of God. Servetus was resolved at last to stand to his watch, but was not unduly confident of his resolution, and requested that he might die by the sword, lest in the extremity of his anguish he should recant and lose his soul. The request was denied, but he was not deprived of the consolations of religion, and of the opportunity to repent up to the very last. Farrell, who happened to be in Geneva, served as the minister of the gospel who should accompany the criminal to the stake. Perhaps we would find the task less distasteful than Calvin, whose desire to mitigate the penalties seemed to Farrell too soft. From Farrell's pen we have this account of the Via Dosolora. On the way to the stake, when some brethren urged him to confess freely his fault and repudiate his errors, 
He said that he suffered unjustly and prayed that God would forgive his accusers. I said to him at once, Do you justify yourself when you have sinned so fearfully? If you continue, I will not go with you another step, but will leave you to the judgment of God. I intended to go along and ask everyone to pray for you, hoping that you would edify the people. I did not wish to leave you until you should draw the last breath. Then he stopped and said nothing more of this sort. He asked forgiveness for his errors, ignorance, and sins, but never made a full confession. He often prayed with us while we were exhorting, and asked the spectators several times to pray the Lord for him. But we could not get him openly to admit his errors, and confess that Christ is the eternal Son of God. The account of the end is from an anonymous source hostile to Calvin. We were told that Servetus was led to a pile of wood still green, a crown of straw and leaves sprinkled with sulfur was placed upon his head. His body was attached to the stake with an iron chain. His book was tied to his arm. A stout rope was wound four or five times about his neck. He asked that it should not be further twisted. When the executioner brought the fire before his face, he gave such a shriek that all the people were horror-stricken. As he lingered, some threw on wood. In a fearful wail, he cried, O Jesus, Son of the Eternal God, have pity on me. At the end of half an hour, he died.